Lord, before we ask you to come and open up your word to us, both written and living, because we know and we always are reminded how powerless we are to understand this book without the direct interpretation of your Holy Spirit. Lord, before we ask for that, with those images of your crucifixion burned in our mind, let us ask you this. How could you? When there were people below the cross shouting insults and you tried to defend them by saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How could you? For all of those that passed by, and didn't even care enough to look. All of the multitudes who had no idea of the price. And you died for them too. How could you? But what really bothers me most is that for those who were supposedly the most devoted to you. But when it came down to it, they wouldn't stand. And you died for them. How could you? Thank you. We are all in your debt. Help us to understand your great love, Lord, and to adore you in return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your scriptures, would you please turn to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John? Let me tell you how much I love this book. <laughs> I always tell you I love these books. John is the Gospel that is at once the simplest but the most profound of all the Gospels. It has a running commentary from the author himself. If the Lord wills, I plan next year on preaching through the Gospel of John so that we can just appreciate just this great book together. But for right now, I want to talk about and this is the final in the series, the, the principle of spiritual investment. I mean, P-A-L, the person. You know, all, all of the stewardship series that we've talked about, you could, you could say, well, yeah, I can see that. That's a good, useful reason for doing this. I mean, there's, who wouldn't want to realign their life so that it lines up with heaven and it is how it should be and has the significance it should? Sure. I mean, that just makes sense. And then, and then you know... Who wouldn't want um, to, to, by managing God's resources rightly, uh, store up them for themselves treasures in heaven? Rewards, of course, sure. Who wouldn't want, as we go along and, and buy these investments, get, get the dividends, which is the character of Christ in our lives so that we could be more like Jesus? Of course. So all of them have very good reasons for doing that, and all of them have, you could say, more than spiritual, utilitarian reasons, useful reasons, practical reasons. 
But now we come down to the last, but the overwhelming focus. Christ himself. The reason that we use all his resources for him is to pay attention to him. And this kind of fades in its, in its practicality because, because you've heard people say, well, yeah, okay, yeah, that's fine. Pay attention to him. And, and, and that's kind of French for whatever. I don't know, what, I don't know the, the use of that. But I want to read to you a passage from the 12th chapter of John, starting with verse 1, and read to you of a lady who really is the forerunner of us all. Jesus, therefore, six days before Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. <laughs> now, let me just give you a little, uh, uh, a little question. What do you think was the atmosphere of this party? Uh, how, how, how would you like to eat with somebody who raised you from the dead? I think it's pretty neat. I think it was, I think it was wonderfully joyful. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving. You know Martha. She's always serving. That's who Martha is. And even though we're going to talk about Mary this morning, I want you to know that Martha, in her own form and in her own way, focused just as much on Jesus by serving as Mary did by anointing. It's very important for all of us to understand. Sometimes the servers kind of get overlooked. But yet, they are devoting their lives to Christ. Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. <laughs> I could just see this. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. Now, some of, the, some of the commentaries say that this is the kind that comes from the bushes um, um, that are in the Himalayas between Tibet and India. You can imagine how rare and how valuable this stuff was. And it says this. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. That the scene is like this, physically speaking. They didn't eat like we eat on a table. They had a low table and they reclined at the table. And so you ate leaning up on one elbow, getting the food with your, with your other uh, hand, and your feet were extended behind. That's how Mary had access to his feet. There is another sermon here that I'm going to resist preaching, but it goes something like this. The least appealing feature is always the most available. That, that's, that's where there's a spiritual connection made. The feature held in least honor, that is the feet, is the one that is most approachable, spiritually speaking. That's another sermon, no. Let me, let me kind of give you the atmosphere of this because it was so great. Can you imagine eating with somebody who had brought you back from the dead? 1927, Eugene O'Neill wrote a book in which he in his own perception, imagined 
the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus. And it was entitled, Lazarus Laughed. It was the sweetest thing. He, he said, he said it, it was kind of like from the standpoint of somebody who was observing Lazarus being raised from the dead. And after he was unbound, he stood there facing Christ. And he didn't know what to do. What do you do after you're raised from the dead? And so he got down on his knees and he kissed the feet of Jesus. And Jesus reached down and stood him up. And the passage says that Jesus smiled as if he were remembering years ago when he had not yet realized he was bearing the sins of the whole world. He smiled and he called Lazarus brother and he walked away. And then the passage says and Lazarus started laughing. He still didn't know what to do. He only knew he wasn't dead anymore. And he started laughing. It wasn't a hilarious laugh. It wasn't a thigh-slapping, flippant laugh. It was this, I'm not dead anymore laugh. It was this, I love you for that laugh. It was a, I love this laugh. Lazarus laughed. When Sarah overheard she was going to have a baby, Sarah laughed. This, that old 80-year-old dead womb had been resurrected. She didn't know what to do. I mean, she, she didn't know what to do. So she started laughing. Somebody said, you're laughing? She said, no, I'm not. She, they said, yeah, you are. There was this. Everything I hoped for but thought was impossible. Laugh. I want you to tell me what you think the atmosphere of that party was. When somebody realized they weren't dead anymore. You know why you can tell me? Because you've been resurrected. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, it reads like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In verse 4 it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. You are the resurrected if you are in Jesus Christ. Now you tell me what it feels like to not be dead anymore. You tell me. Yes. 
You tell me what it's like to eat with Jesus when you realize that you don't have to fear the end anymore. You tell me. Years ago, I heard a story about a little boy in a sterile environment because he had one of those diseases where just one germ could kill him. But as he was raised in that environment, there's one thing he missed, and that was just to be able to touch, actually touch his mom and dad. He just wanted that so bad. One day, the doctor came in, and after the examination and the blood tests, he said, son, I'm, I'm so sorry, but you have contracted a disease, and it will probably kill you. And the little boy began to laugh. And he walked out of that environment, and he clung to his mom and dad. You tell me what happens when you don't have to be afraid of the end anymore. You tell me. <laughs> you tell me what that's like. There's this wonderful joy that's available to us. Emily Dickinson wrote this, who has not found the heaven below will fail of it above. God's, God's residence is next to mine. His furniture is love. You tell me what it's like to look in the eyes of the Redeemer because you walk with him every day. He eats with you every day. You tell me. There was a point in this supper when Mary realized that she was in the presence of this one whom had blessed the one she loved and would do the same for her. And she was so taken with that that she couldn't help herself. She wasn't thinking. She wasn't thinking of anybody else around. She was focused on Christ and she went in behind him and and she poured this perfume on his feet. And then she got down on her knees. Now watch this. She'd forgotten the towel. At least that's what I think happened. And let me tell you why I think so. Because it was scandalous for a woman of that time to let down her hair. It was a matter of impropriety. And I don't think Mary ever would have embarrassed Jesus by doing anything around him that would cause a scandal in his life. But she wasn't thinking of anybody else. She wasn't thinking of anything else but just loving him. And so she just let down her hair and she wiped his feet. And by doing that, she said, in essence, I don't care about anybody but you right now. I don't. Emily Dickinson once wrote, Given in marriage unto thee, O thou celestial host, bride of the Father and the Son, bride of the Holy Ghost, all betrothal will decay 
wedlock of will dissolve. Only the keeper of this seal conquers mortality. That day, her heart was married to Christ. He was her husband. And that intimate act that wouldn't have been proper in public was proper because of her focus on him. What a great story. What a great example. And I wish with all my heart I could stop here. I wish the story ended here. I wish it ended like, all, like we want all of them to end and they lived happily ever after because it, it was just like it should have been. But you live in the same world I do and we live in the same world they did. And in our world and in their world, for every positive, there's a negative. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. For every act of selfless love, there is a self-occupied voice of caution. And that's exactly what happened. Because in the fourth verse of that 12th chapter, it says this. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? And that's just about like he said it. He thinks he has asked a rhetorical question. He thinks he's asked a question so convicting that all of them are going to do a V8 on their head and say, Oh, Judas, why didn't we think of that? The next verse tells us why he said that. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because it was the thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Every time there is an act of selfless love, an extravagant act of selfless devotion to Christ, there will always be voices who say, you shouldn't do that. That doesn't make good sense. Now, let me hasten to say this. Not all of them come from the devil. Some of them come from just the fact that they love you and that they love others and that they see arranging the world in different ways and all of them are valuable and all of them are there for a purpose and that's for us to learn from them. Having said that, let me say to all of you, you have a choice where your focus is and where your focus remains. Years ago, someone asked Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men in the world, one of the barons of the economy at the turn of the century, someone asked him how he could possibly have that many millionaires working for him. At one point, he had 43 millionaires in his employ. That's how rich he was. And Carnegie said this, they weren't millionaires when they started with me. The follow-up question was then even more important. How is it that you employed people that were so industrious 
that they could earn a million dollars working for you. How did you spot them, those with that kind of capacity? And Carnegie said this, you know, working with people is a little bit like mining for gold. People will, will move tons of dirt to get to an ounce of gold. What you've got to remember, though, is that you're not looking for the dirt, you're looking for the gold. <coughs> Let me ask you, as you look at the world, you're looking for dirt, you're looking for gold. You're looking for dirt? If you're looking for dirt, you'll be able to find it anywhere. You really will. Pick up the paper. Dirt. You can find it in your friendships. You can find it at your work. You can find it in this church. Plenty. Looking for dirt? Or are you looking and focusing on the gold? That day, Mary was not about to think about anything other than Jesus right in her midst, focused on the gold. Judas, on the other hand, was coming up with some very good reasons not to do that. I mean, they were really, you know, who wouldn't agree we ought to give money to the poor? Now, the reason that somebody comes up with these reasons is always a matter of, investigation. I mean, if you're the one coming up with them, you got to investigate, okay, where's that coming from? But the point is that when you choose to look at why somebody shouldn't love extravagantly, why somebody shouldn't go forward with giving their whole life in love, those very reasons will probably take you where you don't think you want to go or not take you where you think you do want to go. You've got to be cautious of that because going where you want to go is not a matter of intellect. <laughs> There's an old joke that used to float around, old preacher's joke, float around preacher circles. And it had to do with an airplane flight. Long before we had jets, it was when, when there were still propeller flights and there was a flight crew and <clears throat> and, a, and on a smaller plane, there's a, there's a smaller plane, there was only a, a passenger, uh, four, four passengers on this, on this plane. But it took off anyhow. The passengers went like this. There was, a, there was a, a, a brain surgeon. There was a famous scientist. There was a Boy Scout. And there was a pastor. That was the, that was the passenger list. Well, they got in the flight, they developed uh, trouble, and, uh, and uh, the crew knew that the, that the, uh, um, the plane was going to go down. And so back in that day, you could just bust open a door and put on a parachute and bail out, which is exactly what they did. Crew just grabbed parachutes and bailed out. And the captain came back to this little group, and he had his parachute on, and he said, you know what? I got bad news. There's four of you. There's only three parachutes. And he bailed out. So they're sitting there looking at each other. Well, it only takes about one second before the brain surgeon just, just absolutely uh, um, um, grabs one, pops up, says, I'm the only person in the world that can perform this certain kind of brain surgery, and therefore I'm going to save myself. And he, he, he you know, jumped out the door. 
Well, just you know, in a matter of seconds after that, this famous scientist stands up. He says, I am the smartest man in the world, and I owe it to humanity to save myself. And he jumps out. So that leaves the pastor and the Boy Scout. Pastor looks at the Boy Scout and says, Son, you got your whole life ahead of you. I want you to put this parachute on. And the Boy Scout looks at the pastor and says, Reverend, why don't you go ahead and you put that one on because the smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane wearing my backpack. Intellect doesn't get where you want to go. You can come up with the best reasons in the world not to love. You can come up with the best reasons in the world not to give yourself totally to Christ. But that won't get you where you want to go. They may be religious reasons. It still won't get you where you want to go. Let me just read you the last two verses of this passage. It says, therefore... Jesus said, therefore, verse 7, let her alone. You know how you can tell the difference between Jesus and the devil? Jesus defends, the devil accuses. Jesus defends, the devil accuses. Real easy. Real easy. Jesus, is a, Jesus right now is in heaven making intercession for us. That's his nature. He defended the one who loved him right away. Let her alone. And then, what's almost comical to me, even though when Jesus speaks, he doesn't, need to, he doesn't need to give reasons. He gave a reason. He tried to give a practical reason. And it's kind, of, it's kind of almost cute. Because he says, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, people hearing this might have thought that not only was he announcing his crucifixion, but he was excusing what she had done as his anointing for her burial, or his burial. Now, you know, doggone well, that's not, I mean, they weren't going to get, after the crucifixion, take him to the grave and say, mm, we don't need to, we don't need to uh, prepare this body because Mary did it back in Bethany, remember? That's not going to work. See, sometimes when you think you need an excuse for loving, you come up with this kind of practical excuse that's not really the excuse. I mean, it's not the deal. I, Becky, Becky and I do this all the time. When we just want to express our love, you know, sometimes we just do nutty stuff and we'll buy stuff we can't possibly afford and, and just stay here, you know. And, and that, that Becky did that this week. I love to pray over the, over the world and, and, and go by countries. And, and, and always before I've used a, 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 an atlas for that, but I've always wanted a globe. And I walked in my office last week and there was this gorgeous globe sitting on the, on the and Becky standing there like this. You know, and I, oh, that's so neat. And then my practical side kicked in and said, wait a minute, we can't afford that. And Becky said, hey, this is your Christmas present. Now, I know Becky well enough to know that <laughs> December 25th, she's not going to be looking around the, the tree going, remember, remember November? That was it, buddy. I know she's going to get me something else. But she felt like she had to come up, oh, it's your Christmas present. Some practical reason to express her love. Jesus said, 
This is something, watch this, that you may need, but she needs it because she's going to keep it for my burial. She'll remember someday. <laughs> she anointed me, and she will never, ever regret it. And then he said this, the poor you will always have with you. Does one person in here think that Jesus was saying, so don't give to the poor? Of course, you know better than that. As a matter of fact, the more we love Jesus, the more we'll give to the poor. It's not an either or, it's a both and. It's a because of. But he said this, I won't always be here. Some of you need to hear this this morning. There comes a very important window of time at certain times of your life when you can express your love to somebody. It's not always there. Some of you think, well, I'll always have that opportunity. You won't. I can always say this later. Many times you can't. You say it while you can say it. And you will never regret it. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for this book. Thank you just as much for this lady who did what all of us want to do. We want to anoint you. We want to devote ourselves to you. We want to, we want to adore you. Thank you that we don't have to be afraid of things ending anymore because you're Lord of both sides. But thank you even more that we have the privilege of looking into the eyes of the one who resurrected us from the dead and adoring you.